When you think of great European capitals, what comes to mind? London, Paris, Rome, Berlin? Don't blame you. Those are pretty high-profile cities. Here's a question for you. Do you ever think of Lisbon? Let's be honest. Lisbon is often overlooked. It clings to the far western edge of Europe. It's the westernmost capital of Europe, and it's the only capital city in Europe on the Atlantic coast. And it's not along the way to anywhere, so I guess you really have to want to go. So why go to Lisbon? Is it worth the effort? Hello, and welcome to Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. I'm your host, Brian Unger, providing the historical, cultural, and geographical backstories for some of the greatest destinations in Europe to help you get a fuller appreciation for these places when you visit. In each episode, we'll point out the top highlights of each destination and maybe even identify some of the lesser-known hidden gems. This is the second-last episode in Season 1 of Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. It's been a fun tour of Europe so far, and I've really appreciated the feedback I have received from Snapshots listeners. Feel free to contact me on Instagram, Snapshots Travelogue, one word, or search up Brian Unger on Facebook to leave any comments, questions, or suggestions. Today, we are going to Lisbon after a request from a Regent Seven Seas guest who will be sailing off to the Portuguese capital later this year. That is, assuming that we will be back at sea sometime soon, hopefully. And I can tell you and everyone who is listening that going to Lisbon is worth the effort. Let's start with some things you might not know about Lisbon. It is one of the oldest cities in the world, and it is the second oldest European capital city, predating other modern European capitals by centuries. Only Athens is older than Lisbon. In its heyday, the city had a population of barely 100,000, but it ruled over the first global empire in history. Not only that, it was the longest lived of all the modern European colonial empires. Take that, London, Paris, and Rome. Today, 186 million people worldwide speak Portuguese as their native language, which makes it the third most widely spoken European language in the world. Not bad for a country of only 10 million people. And Portugal were also pioneers in many historical developments of the European world. Overseas colonization on the islands of the Atlantic, that was a Portuguese concept. Finding a sea lane to Asia, which opened the way for the great European trading empires? Thank you, Portugal. And Portugal also has to take the blame for initiating the African slave trade to Europe and to the Americas. All of this went directly through Lisbon and contributed to making it one of the most interesting cities in Europe. Today, we are going to look at the backstory that created the Portuguese empire and see how much of this is embedded in the DNA of Lisbon. This includes brushes with the Moors, perilous voyages into uncharted waters, the search for a mythical king, the assassination of a Portuguese monarch, and you won't believe what happened in Lisbon in 1756. So let's dive in and get to know tenacious little Portugal and its capital city of Lisbon. And when we're done, 
we'll focus on some specific things that you can see and do that will help you get the most out of your visit. Modern Day Lisbon is located on the Atlantic coast at the mouth of the Tagus River. There's a nice little estuary there. There's a sheltered harbor. It's an ideal place for settlement. So it's not surprising that Iron Age settlements have been found in this area as far back as the 8th century BCE. Fortifications on Lisbon's Castelo Hill date back to the 2nd century BCE when it was occupied by the Phoenicians. Today, this is known as St. George Castle. This is a place that you'll most likely visit when you go to Lisbon. More on that later. It was from here that trade would have been carried out with the inland tribes on the Iberian Peninsula. One of the most important parts of this trade were the prized Lusitanian war horses that were native to the Iberian Peninsula and they were renowned all throughout the ancient world. The Phoenicians called this settlement Ulysiopo, which is probably where we get the word Lisbon from. Then the Romans invaded, as they tend to do all over Europe. They named the land Lusitania after a local chieftain, hence Lusitanian horses. They further developed this port at Lisbon, building roads and bridges, theaters, baths, several temples to the gods, a large necropolis, and a large forum. But after the fall of Rome, Lisbon started to be ruled by a series of Germanic tribes. But in the 8th century, it was captured by the Moors. The Muslim influence is very visible in Lisbon. In the Amalfa district, it's the oldest existing district in the city, where you'll see a lot of the place names are derived from Arabic. The version of St. George Castle that we see looming over Lisbon today is the 11th century Moorish version. Now, the Moors were terrific at building fortresses wherever they went, and St. George's in Lisbon is a great example of that. Eventually, the Muslim Moors were able to gain control over most of the Iberian Peninsula, but small Christian kingdoms still managed to maintain a foothold in the north. Little by little, Christian armies pushed southward, culminating in the Battle of Orique in 1139, when the greatly outnumbered forces of Alfonso Henriquez defeated the Muslims. Eight years later, in 1147, Alfonso conquered Lisbon. After this, Alfonso began calling himself Alfonso I, King of the Independent Kingdom of Portugal. And if you know anyone from Portugal, you will know that Alfonso is a pretty common and popular name. So this would be why. Alfonso moved into St. George Castle and he made it the home of the Portuguese royal family. And in the 13th century, it was fully converted into a royal palace. But the neighboring kingdom of Castile, which was the dominant of the most dominant of the Spanish kingdoms at the time, was thinking not so fast. Castile did not recognize the independence of Portugal. However, after a decisive victory over the Castilians in another battle in 1385, the independence of Portugal was assured. By the way, the hero of that battle was Nuno Alvarez Pereira. And this is why Pereira is a super common Portuguese surname. Remember this guy, 400 years later, he's going to be shaken. Stay tuned for that one. So what about all of the Muslim residents who are living in Lisbon through all of this? Well, some converted to Roman Catholicism, 
but most of them fled to other parts of the Islamic world, primarily to Muslim Spain and back to North Africa. All of the mosques in Lisbon were either completely destroyed or converted into churches. As a result of the end of Muslim rule, spoken Arabic quickly lost its place in the everyday life of the city and it disappeared altogether. So how does a newly established country become the world's first truly global world power? Well, we have a perfect storm of events, which all came together in 15th century Portugal. They had an ideal location with a long tradition of maritime activities dating back to the days of the Phoenicians. Portugal also had a stable monarchy, more so than other countries at that time. France was not yet unified, and England was dealing with the Wars of the Roses. I mentioned the Reconquista, or the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula by the Christians from the Moors. Spain didn't finish the Reconquista until they took Granada in the year 1492, but Portugal finished it by the 12th century. That meant there were a lot of soldiers kicking around who no longer had a war to fight. They were trained for warfare, seeking glory and to make a name for themselves. But sheep herding or farming as a duke of a remote region, not too exciting. They were seeking glory and adventure. So what better way to deploy these guys than to send them off to other lands? Because if they're hanging around at home, they could turn on you. And the Portuguese were very clever by either inventing new technologies or incorporating existing technological innovations, which would allow them to push their frontiers. A good example of that is the astrolabe. This is a device that measured angles between your position on the earth and the stars and the moon or the sun. This would allow you to calculate your latitude. This was nothing new. Greek and Arabic peoples had been using an astrolabe for centuries, but this had always been used as a land-based navigational tool. The Portuguese thought, why not use it at sea? Using this new deployment of the astrolabe, sailors could now sail out of sight of land with some degree of comfort. The Portuguese also pioneered portaland navigational maps based on compass directions and an estimated distances observed by pilots at sea. Another tool was the rochero, which was kind of like a diary plus a map with navigational information. Portuguese guarded these as state secrets to keep them from falling into the hands of their competitors. And here's a big one. The Portuguese developed the caravel. This is a 50-meter, 160-ton, three-masted ship with a variety of sails. You had your square-mast sail, and that was the European traditional sail that was very good for providing power. But the Portuguese mixed in triangular Latin sails. This allowed ships to tack 90 degrees against the wind. This is a powerful, innovative ship, and it was a big reason why Portugal took off as a maritime power. One more biggie, although the Portuguese didn't invent cannons, they were the first to stick cannons on ships to make them like a floating fortress. So the Portuguese are now equipped to explore beyond their horizons. But how do you explain their zeal to explore? Hitting the seas and claiming new lands for God was in effect like a continuation of the Crusades. They were going to continue the Reconquista throughout the known world. A watershed date in history is May 22, 1453, when the Ottoman Turks conquered Constantinople 
the Christian city that was founded by the Roman Emperor Constantine in 323. This shook the foundation of the Christians right to their core. Incidentally, Istanbul is the destination for our next episode on Snapshots Travelog, so check that out next week, what a story Istanbul is. But back to our story here. Christian armies had successfully retaken the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslims, so they are now, they had set their sights on Constantinople. How would they take Constantinople, reclaim it for Christianity? Well, they had an ace in the hole. Somewhere far overseas, age-old stories were told of a lost Christian empire of fabulous wealth and power. Its ruler was known as Prester John. It was thought that this mighty king was likely a descendant of one of the three Magi. His kingdom boasted a number of marbles, including a fountain of youth, which kept him alive through the centuries. Remember, this is an age where, according to the Bible, Noah's lifespan was 950 years. That was an accepted fact. Methuselah set the record in the Bible. He lived 969 years. So to the people of the time period, it was entirely plausible that Prester John was alive and well. The legend goes he had the title of the Emperor of Three Indias, and he ruled over 72 kings. His kingdom allegedly boasted horned men, one-eyed men, centaurs, fawns, pygmies, giants, and bird lions called griffins. He had a standing army that was reputed to be 100,000 strong, and if need be, he could put one million men into the field, not to mention the centaurs, fawns, giants, and griffins. So whenever Europe was under threat from overseas, Prester John was half expected to ride to the rescue and crush the infidels. The Muslim conquest of Constantinople was clearly the biggest threat ever faced by Christendom. Surely Prester John would agree to restore the proper Christian order of things. The thinking was he reigned in an Ethiopian kingdom somewhere in Eastern Africa. If only he could be found. Of course, there were other motives for exploration namely trade and profit, and most specifically, spices. Pepper was grown almost exclusively on tall vines in the Malabar coast of western India. When peppercorns are harvested, they're gathered up and merchants were carried them to markets all across the world, and spices were a huge deal because they were used to flavor meat, which would otherwise be very bland without seasoning. But pepper in particular was super valuable because in the days before refrigeration, it masked the taste of rotting meat. During Roman times, pepper was considered a great symbol of wealth. Since gold coins were scarce, peppercorns and other spices even became a substitute for money. Historically, getting these spices from Asia to Europe was a challenging enough proposition, but to make matters worse, the overland route now had to traverse through largely Muslim-controlled territories. Consequently, the Muslims dominated the spice trade. One historian commented, whenever there were spices, there were Muslims. But how to circumvent the Muslim stranglehold on the spice trade? If only there was a way to get to India by sea. Enter Henry the Navigator. The year is 1394. 
and Prince Henry was born into royalty as a son of King John of Portugal. But he was the fourth son, so the chances of him becoming king were pretty remote. So he had to carve out a new niche for himself. In 1420, at the age of 26, he was named governor of the very wealthy Order of Christ. Now that's the Portuguese successor to the Knights Templar. This guaranteed Henry a really healthy income stream, which allowed him to pursue his passion, which was exploration. Now, Henry himself was not an explorer or even a sailor. He was a sponsor for explorers and navigators, and a lot of that was based around his villa at Zagres, which is on the extreme southwestern tip of Portugal. Sailors, navigators, cartographers, scientists all enjoyed his sponsorship. And Henry, of course, also had the ear of the king because, you know, it was his father. And he encouraged the king to get behind his plans to find his sea route to the spices of the Indies. And by doing that, they could bypass the Muslims. And as an added bonus, maybe they could find the elusive Prester John. Under Henry's guidance, the next 30 years of Portuguese history were remarkable. It started with the Portuguese attack on the Islamic commercial port of Ceuta in northern Morocco. This would be Portugal's first overseas colonial possession. And if you heard my last podcast on Gibraltar, you may know that the place was fraught with symbolism, as this was also the southern pillar of Hercules. So this announced Portugal's arrival as a crusading power. Henry's next conquest happened almost by accident. In 1419, two of Henry's ships were blown off course by a storm, and they stumbled upon a lush, uninhabited group of islands 370 miles from Morocco, so these guys were lost. The islands were named by, were claimed by Portugal in 1420 and given a name. They were called Madeira. This proved to be a great source of wood for building ships, and it had a good climate for growing wheat, grapes, and as a huge bonus, sugarcane. The Portuguese were euphoric over this discovery. In fact, the first boy and girl born to pioneers in Madeira were named Adam and Eve. I was able to visit Madeira on a cruise a few years ago. It's a beautiful island that you may know for its wonderful wine. Madeira at the time went on to become one of the most popular wines in Europe and continues to be a very popular wine. The Azores were the next for the Portuguese in 1430, and they added those islands to their empire. They then continued down the African coast, setting up trading posts to, to make trades with the kingdoms of the African interior, like Guinea, Senegal, and Mali. But sadly, the most lucrative trade commodity became slaves. Part of the Portuguese legacy of exploration is that they were among the first to bring African slaves to Europe. And this opened a dark chapter in human history. Slave forts were set up in Africa, and that supplied a bustling slave selling market in Lisbon. The Portuguese, in fact, held a 200-year monopoly on the exportation of slaves from Africa. When the Portuguese figured out that they could grow sugarcane on their colony in Madeira, the light in their heads went on. African slaves were exactly what was needed to do this backbreaking labor. Profits would be huge, and shortly on the heels of that would be the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. By 1455, 800 Africans were transported to Portugal annually, and Prince Henry received one-fifth of the sales received from the sale of each slave. 
By the way, Henry had no moral qualms with this whatsoever. He justified enslaving African peoples because he intended to convert them. I mean, let's face it, a miserable life of servitude on earth is a small price to pay for an eternity in heaven. But the Portuguese slave trade was just getting started. In the year 1500, Pedro Cabral was the first European to see a land that he named the land of the true cross, and he claimed it for Portugal. This land was renamed after a tree that was its earliest export. That tree was the Brazil tree. By the second half of the 16th century, sugar became the main export, triggering a huge importation of slaves to Brazil. Now, I don't know if this is widely known, but Portuguese Brazil was the most popular destination in the transatlantic slave trade. Four and a half million were sent to the Caribbean, half a million to America, but five million went to Portuguese Brazil. So although the Portuguese were the first European power to export slaves, many others followed. And so it's probably not fair to blame the slave trade entirely on the Portuguese, but that is one legacy left by Prince Henry as he wins the dubious award of being the first merchant in the transatlantic human trafficking trade. Well, Prince Henry died in 1456 with the Portuguese presence firmly entrenched in West Africa. Henry is remembered in history as Prince Henry the Navigator, and he is without doubt one of the most important and significant people in Portuguese history. After Henry the Navigator died, exploration went into a bit of a lull, but it was kickstarted by King John II, who was the grand nephew of Henry. He went on to become king in 1481, and he got to work. They still hadn't found that sea route to Asia, and where was Prester John? They had a breakthrough. In 1488, when Bartholomew Diaz returned from rounding the Cape of Good Hope on the southern tip of Africa. Huge news. They now knew that the Indian Ocean was not closed. Nine years later, in July of 1497, Four sailing ships glided out of the crowded harbor at Lisbon under the command of Vasco da Gama. He was sailing on his 200-ton flagship, the St. Gabriel, and he had a crew of 170 men. Utilizing the currents of the South Atlantic Ocean gyre, they took a really odd route that took them all the way across the Atlantic, along the coast of Brazil, and then the current slingshotted them back across the Atlantic Ocean to the Cape of Good Hope, which they made it by Christmas. It took them five months, which was the longest time anyone had been out to sea. They edged around the Cape eastward into what we now know as the Indian Ocean, but to Vasco da Gama, he was headed into uncharted waters. There was a lot of drama on this voyage as they bounced up the east coast of Africa before they finally made the 23-day run across the Indian Ocean, arriving in India at Calicut in May of 1498. They had been at sea, away from Lisbon, for almost a full year. When they arrived in Calicut, allegedly the first words Vasco da Gama spoke upon landing were, We seek Christians and spices. They were still hoping to track down that elusive Prester John. They didn't find Christians, they found Hindus, and that completely baffled the Gamma and his men. 
But the local Hindu ruler welcomed the Portuguese, and the crew ended up staying in Calicut for three months. However, not everyone embraced their presence, especially the Muslim traders who clearly have no intention of giving up their trading grounds to these Christian visitors. In August of 1498, da Gama and his men took to the seas again, and they began their journey back to Portugal. And it was not easy. They hit monsoons. Men died of scurvy. And at one point, in an effort to economize his fleet, da Gama ordered one of his ships to be burned it took them almost a year to return. All in all, the Gamma's first journey covered nearly 24,000 miles in close to two years, and only 54 of the original 170 crew members survived. But when da Gamma returned to Lisbon, he was greeted as a hero. In 1502, Vasco da Gama helmed another journey back to India, but this time he had 20 ships and over 2,000 men. And this voyage was heavy on gunboat diplomacy as da Gama embarked on one of the most gruesome massacres of the exploration age. He and his crew terrorized Muslim ports up and down the African East Coast. And at one point, they set ablaze a Muslim pilgrim ship returning from Mecca, killing the several hundreds of people on board, including women and children. Next, the crew went back to Calicut in India, and when they arrived there, they destroyed the city's trade port. They killed 38 hostages. They finally departed from Calicut in February of 1503, and they came back to Portugal about eight months later. But the route to India was now locked down by the Portuguese. The spice trade proved to be a gold mine for Portugal and the Portuguese were just getting started. They went on to establish trading ports, por, uh, port posts throughout Southeast Asia, China, and Japan. In fact, Macau remained under Portuguese rule all the way until 1999 when it was returned to China, and that's two years after Great Britain did the same thing with Hong Kong. The Portuguese empire is one of the longest lived empires in world history lasting for almost six centuries. That's quite a feat for this plucky little country hanging off the western edge of Europe. The 16th century was Lisbon's golden era. The city was the European hub of commerce between Africa, India, the Far East, and later Brazil. Great riches were acquired by exploiting the trade in spices, slaves, sugar, textiles, and other goods. These riches were poured into the construction of many 16th century monuments that will delight you when you visit. The Bellum Tower and the Geronimos Monastery are two of those, and both of those have been declared UNESCO World Heritage Sites. I'll talk about these in the highlights of Lisbon at the end. As we get into the late 17th century, gold from Brazil will fund the construction of several spectacular Baroque churches and theaters in the city. Lisbon was awash in beautiful buildings. But one fear loomed over the city. Prior to the 18th century, Lisbon had experienced several significant earthquakes, eight in the 14th century, five in the 16th century, including one that destroyed 1,500 houses, and three in the 17th century, which takes us to the year 1755. It's November 1st, 
the Feast of All Saints holiday at 9.40 a.m., the Great Lisbon Earthquake struck. Some contemporary reports state that the earthquake lasted as long as six minutes, causing fissures 15 feet wide in the city center. About 40 minutes after the earthquake, a tsunami engulfed the harbor and the downtown area, rushing up the Tagus River. Witnesses reported that the tsunami closed in so fast that, quote, several people riding on horseback were forced to gallop as fast as possible to the upper grounds for fear of being carried away, unquote. Two more tsunami waves followed. Now, I mentioned that it was All Saints Day. This is a terrible day to have an earthquake because candles have been lit in homes and churches all around the city, and these were knocked over, starting a fire that developed into a firestorm which burned for hours in the city. The flames were so great that people a hundred feet away from the blaze were asphyxiated. Seismologists today estimate that the Lisbon earthquake was a magnitude 8.4, and that is a significantly large earthquake. How large was it? Well, shocks from the earthquake were felt throughout Europe, as far as Finland and in North Africa. And according to some sources, even in Greenland and the Caribbean, the population of Lisbon at this time was around 200,000, and estimates placed the death toll at up to 50,000, which is an astonishing one quarter of everyone who lived in the city. It is, without doubt, one of the deadliest earthquakes in history. 85% of Lisbon's buildings were destroyed, including famous palaces and libraries. Now, I mentioned the St. George's Castle earlier, it had already been damaged in a 1531 quake, and it had fallen into disrepair, but the big quake of 1755 finished it off altogether. The palace and the fortress would now be all but abandoned. The new Lisbon Opera House, which had opened just six months before, burned to the ground. The royal palace was destroyed along with the 70,000-volume Royal Library, which included detailed historical records of explorations by Vasco da Gama and other early navigators. The Portuguese king, Joseph I, was now so freaked out by living within the walls, he and his court moved into a huge complex of tents and pavilions in the hills on the outskirts of Lisbon. The tales of those who perished was harrowing. Hundreds of patients at the largest public hospital in Lisbon burned to death while fire consumed the building. All over the city, ordinary citizens were ordered to remove the thousands of corpses before disease could spread, many of whom were loaded onto barges and buried at sea. Even those who were already dead were affected. Remember how we talked about the Portuguese national hero, Nuno Alvarez Pereira? who secured the independence of Portugal in a 1385 battle with the Kingdom of Castile, his tomb was destroyed. If you want to get a sense of what the earthquake did to the city, visit the ruins of Carmel Convent, which is right in the center of the historic center of Lisbon. This has been preserved as a reminder of the destruction. The earthquake had other far-reaching effects. Political tensions in Portugal were raised and it threw a huge wrench into its colonial ambitions. And the event also shook all of Europe and was widely discussed and dwelt upon by European Enlightenment philosophers. 
The earthquake had struck on an, an important religious holiday and it destroyed almost every important church in the city, which caused anxiety and confusion amongst the citizens of a staunch and devout Roman Catholic country. It raised the question of theodicy, which is why does a good God permit the manifestation of evil, or in this case, a devastating tragedy? How does this square? Is it a form of punishment? Did Lisbon deserve this? Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Immanuel Kant all wrote extensively on the meaning of this event. And how about this? This was the first earthquake that was studied scientifically for its effect over a large area, which led to the birth of modern seismology and earthquake engineering. So how does this cataclysmic event, how is it relevant to you as a visitor to Lisbon? Well, efforts were immediately launched to rebuild the city, and you'll see evidence of this everywhere. Many of the city's greatest landmarks rose from the ashes of this disaster. In less than a year, the city was cleared of debris and reconstruction began. Keen to have a new and perfectly ordered city, the king commissioned the construction of big squares, rectilineal, large avenues, and widened streets. This would be Lisbon's new look. The Prime Minister of Portugal, the Marquis of Pombal, coordinated a massive rebuilding effort. Hence, the city was rebuilt in what was known as the Pombaline style. Buildings were up to four floors with arcades on the ground floor to allow for shops. And how about this? A prefabrication system was used that was completely new. Buildings were entirely man manufactured outside of the city, transported into the city in pieces, and then assembled on site. Lisbon was completely changed. The medieval plan was replaced by an orthogonal plan. Large spaces, beautiful light, and good ventilation, all of which that was missing in the medieval city became features of the new Lisbon. And there's more. These Pombaline buildings are among the earliest seismically protected constructions in Europe. Small wooden models were built for testing, and earthquakes were simulated by marching troops around them. On your visit, you will no doubt get to know Commerce Square. This large U-shaped space opens right up into the harbor. Its symmetrical buildings were filled with government bureaus which regulated customs and port activities, but today it houses restaurants and galleries. The plaza is home to the oldest cafe in the city, the Martino de Arcada, and it was established in 1782, and that's a place you can visit today. The centerpiece of the square is a magnificent equestrian statue of King Jose I. A triumphal arch was added in 1873. The top section includes statues of important Portuguese figures such as Vasco da Gama and the Marquis of Pombal. You can see pictures of this on my Instagram account, Snapshots Travelogue, so if you want to have a look, check it out. It is a jewel of the city. However, this square was not a pleasant place to be on February 1st, 1908. King Carlos I was passing through in his royal carriage with his wife and two sons on his way to the palace. While crossing the square, shots were fired from, in, from the crowd by two gunmen. The king was shot in the neck and died immediately. One of the, the gunmen, he then boarded the carriage and he continued to fire shots while the queen beat the gunman with the only weapon she had, a bouquet of flowers. Obviously, 
this wasn't particularly effective. So the gunman continued to fire shots. He was able to mortally wound the crown prince, heir to the throne, Louis Philippe. The younger brother, Prince Manuel, was hit in the arm, but he survived. The assassins were shot on the spot by police and later identified as members of the Republican Party. Meanwhile, Manuel was crowned king later that same day, but only two years later, the Republicans would have their way and overthrow the Portuguese monarchy, sending Manuel into exile in England. He would be the last monarch in Portuguese history. So when you go to Lisbon, try to take all of that in when you visit Commerce Square. Now let's touch on some of the things you can see and do in Lisbon to make the most of your visit. We already have you spending some time in Commerce Square, where you can admire the equestrian statue of King Jose I and the triumphal arch crowned by Vasco da Gama and the Marquis of Pombal. You can also ruminate on the assassination of King Carlos I. And if you work up a hunger doing all of that, you can grab a bite at the 18th century Martino de Arcada which is the oldest cafe in the city. But it all started at St. George's Castle, which towers over the city. You might remember that it was pretty much demolished in the Great Lisbon earthquake, but the castle and the ruins of the former palace were restored in the late 1930s. It's regained its former magnificence and it was reopened for public use. They've done a really good job at St. George's of showcasing the lifestyles of this period in Lisbon's history. And the castle grounds and gardens are really enjoyable to explore, wander around, and the views of this city are fantastic. There are a few places you will want to see to get a taste of the age of exploration, which was so important to the growth and development of Lisbon and of Portugal. The sites I'm going to mention now are a part of the legacy of King Manuel I, whose 26-year reign coincided with many of the high points of Portuguese exploration and discovery. Many of the buildings of this period are done in what is referred to as the Manueline architecture, which was inspired very much by the voyages of discovery of these Portuguese navigators from Africa to Brazil to the Far East. And they drew heavily on the style and decorations of the East Indian temples. It makes for a funny fusion, I suppose, of styles. I read one source that describes this Manueline architecture as sumptuous. I love that word. I even looked it up to see if this description fits. As it turns out, the definition of sumptuous is splendid and expensive looking. When you visit these two sites that I'm going to tell you about now, you can't tell me that sumptuous isn't the perfect word. The first will be the Belem Tower. It's a fortification that was built in 1519 as a point of embarkation and disembarkation for Portuguese explorers. It's also seen as a ceremonial gateway to Lisbon. It looks like a little toy castle. You'll know it because it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's probably the most recognizable symbol of Lisbon and of Portugal. It is sumptuous. The other is the Geronimos Monastery. Construction on this monastery began in 1501, and it was funded by money obtained by a 5% tax on commerce from Africa to the Orient. It took 100 years to complete. It is very sumptuous, and it's right near the Bellum Tower. The Naval Museum 
is attached to the western wing of this monastery. This museum is dedicated to all aspects of the history of navigation in Portugal. And holy smokes, did I find this interesting. You'll see astrolabes, you'll see portaland charts and rogeros that were critical to Portuguese success. You'll be dazzled by models of the caravals and other ships that went on these epic voyages of discovery, and you'll be able to follow the tales of their adventures. Now, if you ask me, this is a can't miss attraction in Lisbon, but remember, I am highly biased as I find this kind of thing fascinating. And of course, just wandering around the old town will be filled with the lights, especially in the Moorish Amalfa section, which is the oldest part of Lisbon. And when you're in the old town, it's easy to visit the ruins of Carmo Convent, which has been preserved so you can contemplate the impact of the devastating great earthquake of 1755. You'll see some outstanding examples of the stylish and seismically protected Pombaline buildings, which are laid out in the bright, breezy, orthogonal, organized city plan. The one thing I haven't even mentioned is a day trip that you might want to do. Only about a half an hour away from Lisbon is the Peña Palace in Sintra. This is a romanticist castle that is on literally every list you will find for the most spectacular castles in Europe. I've been there and it is truly amazing. So you're going to have a lot on your plate when you visit Lisbon. It's a tenacious little survivor clinging to the westernmost edge of the European continent. I love Lisbon and I hope you will too. Visit my Instagram account, Snapshots Travelog, to see some pictures of some of the sites that I've been talking about so you will know what to expect when you visit Lisbon. And visit you should. But until then, keep calm and travel on.